that's one thing about the West is so much of the so many of the tropes are about aloneness and solitude, but so many of the experiences of lived Western lives are about deep connections and trust and distrust and and uh, modulating all of those. So that's kind of what I'm hoping that my book participates in. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Christine Bile about her debut novel, Lookout, the story of Josiah and Margaret Kinsler and their two daughters, Louisa and Cody, a working-class family firmly rooted in northwestern Montana. Josiah, or Pop Kinsler, tells his daughter that, quote, sometimes what you don't say out loud for long enough becomes a secret, even if you didn't mean it to. Ironically, perhaps, Lookout, while situated so comfortably in the exterior, in Montana's Rocky Mountains, is not a book that compels its readers to look out. Instead, this is a book about interior lives, a novel that wonders about what is not said. Christine Bile is the author of Dirt Work and Education in the Woods, a book about trail crews, tools, wildness, and labor. It was shortlisted for the 2014 Willa Award in nonfiction. Her prose has appeared in Glimmer Train Stories, The Sun, Crazy Horse, and Brevity, among other journals and anthologies. Christine has worked as a professional trail builder for more than 25 years. She lives with her family in interior Alaska on the homelands of the Diné. Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you, Lauren. It's a real pleasure to be here. And we are recording this conversation over Zoom, and I'm seeing on my computer screen some wooden slats. Where are you Zooming in from today? I am sitting on the couch in my yurt in Healy, Alaska, which is just a bit north of the northern entrance to Denali National Park. Um, so yeah, the wooden slats are the walls. <laughs> good, good eye recognizing them. It's not a background. It's the the, the yurt, um, and you may hear, hopefully not, but the noises of our my rural neighborhood. I, I hear a neighbor running a chainsaw right now. I don't. I haven't been able to make the whole world hush <laughs> for this uh, <laughs> this interview. <laughs> we are here to talk about your debut novel, Lookout, and it's a beautiful novel. Congratulations. Um, I want to make sure before we get into the thick of it, though, that we uh, actually hear from the characters in the novel. So I'm wondering, maybe we can begin our conversation with a reading. Is that is that okay with you? Yes. Um, this is a beginning, the beginning chapter, which is called Start Small, and it takes place in 1985. The summer of the fires started cool and damp. A heavy snow in early May buried pask flowers and daffodils in the barely rising shoots that would become the season's crops, but by the end of the month, the sun lit up like a match. Standing water dried faster than it had in years, and by June, the once puddled ground was hard and hot as a steel skillet. No one remembered the cold. Midsummer, Cody Kinsler woke to light. Bedtime and morning looked alike. Crickets and stars hidden by sun, the only thing visible, the strut of day. By the time Cody stirred, dark was hours gone. 
She lifted her arm against the light between the slatted shades, the back of her hand tanned above her moon-white palm. In the mornings, Cody's father was outside, always. She often ate breakfast alone, Louisa sleeping late and their mother with the hens or in the garden, and Cody looked out the window to see the weather unchanged, hot, blue, bright. Cody was nine, old enough to pour her own cereal or make toast, dark and hard, topped with a soft-boiled egg cooling from the stove. Her mother said too much salt, but Cody liked it between her teeth like sand. She practiced wolfing her eggs like her father did, fast so she could help him with a stock before he left for work. Josiah bent around the stall gates and horses' necks like wire, his hand laid firm on withers or roughing a satiny neck against its grain. The animals' morning noises hushed as they fell on their food, and the sun shouldered into the dim barn between cracks in the warped boards. When Josiah left for the hardware store, Cody returned to the house to see who had appeared, her mother from outside, her sister from their bedroom, wordless and sticky-eyed. Louisa slept like it was her job. All morning, Cody roamed. Pasture to Aspen Grove, riverbank to gravel pit, she ranged like a prospector. The dogs followed close, disappearing in brush after squirrel or scent to emerge again later so reliably that Cody hardly noticed they were gone. She sat on the paddock fence and scratched the horse's flanks when they pressed her legs. She trapped mice with baited tin can, held their noses up to hers and let them go. She bounced pebbles at the chickens, which ruffled them into great squawking piles, and then chased them until she could lift one in her arms, light as a loaf of store-bought bread. Margaret glimpsed her daughter when she thought to look, but mostly Cody's day slid past in unwatched hours. Louisa darted in and out of her games, less often than she used to, as phone calls and girlfriends and moody hours in her room supplanted their sisterish rhythms. Alone, Cody dug holes— sorted dirt and stones into piles. She rarely threw rocks anymore, not even small ones, since Clint Lindsay put out the eye of a crow by accident. The bird had staggered the schoolyard in circles, its eye a bloody pit, wings spread, croaking angry protest. Cody loved the chickens and would rather have put her own eye out, or Clint's. She liked to cause a ruckus, not to harm, but sometimes it was hard to tell the difference. Cody lay on her back in the grass, looking at the sun and the mountains pushed against it, flat as paper shapes in the harsh sun. By noon, the air shimmered. The callous bell daily on the kitchen table said, 85 Western Montana's hottest summer in years. The dogs panted even in the shade. Cody, Margaret said, she's our dreamer. Cody didn't call it dreaming. She called it pretending or thinking. When she saw a red-tailed hawk, she practiced her call. She could imitate a barred owl, a handful of songbirds, robin, meadowlark, chickadee, and a great horned pair calling back and forth. Raptors were her recent interest. Cody preferred fierce to pretty. That's a good end spot. Many of our listeners will recognize you as the author of Dirt Work, which was published in 2013. It's a book of nonfiction. It's about your work on trail crews. And I see a lot of the ideas you presented in Dirt Work in this piece of nonfiction about labor and gender. I see those in Lookout as well. So I thought I'd, I'm wondering what impulse you were giving into or choosing to follow by writing a novel instead of continuing to or returning to nonfiction in the way that you did with Dirt Work. In my nonfiction book, as you mentioned, Dirt Work, there's some of it that's purely autobiographical and 
larger than my own life, the goal with that was to write about the subculture of trail crews. I, I didn't actually intend it to have much of a memoir quality to it. I wanted to write almost like an anthropologist looks at a trail crew and introduces people to this very unknown world. And then through the the writing and the editing of it, it became clear that that story needed a um, uh, uh, an usher for the reader to help them move through the world. And that became the persona that was me. But of course, that was nonfiction. And it was a persona that I used based in reality, but a part of myself to show this world, which in a way, when people think, oh, nonfiction must be so much more naked or disclosing because it's about, quote, you, I actually found the opposite because in Dirt Work, writing about myself as a part of a subculture, I was very controlled about what parts of me I would use for the reader to see this world. Not in a contrived way, but just, you know, as a, as a tool. And then in the novel, which is not about me at all, I didn't grow up this way, this is not my family, I wasn't a child here, whatever, feels like my naked id on the page. <laughs> it's, you know, it comes from my inner life in a way that fiction does that I think there's less control over what you show and what you don't. So that's been a really interesting um, com uh, comparison for me to note that I didn't anticipate. Um, it doesn't exactly get at your question about how it came about, but um, I to answer that question more specifically, um, the kernel of this story has been living in me for two and a half decades. I wrote the the first chapter actually in a in a workshop with a, a class with Bill Kittredge. I was not a grad student. I was a regular Missoulian in 1997, I believe, and um, kind of weaseled my way into a, a class that he had that was open to um, one or two seats. I still, when I look back, think, how did I even do that? I can't exactly remember, but he was very kind and let me stay even though I wasn't on the roster. <laughs> and uh, so that the kernel of that story um, began years and years ago, and in some ways feels unrelated to dirt work, except for the setting and the the things the characters are interested in. There's a lot of overlap. So yeah, they're in a way, they're companion sibling books. And in another way, I think of them as almost like two different universes in a way. I'm wondering then what the process was in turning what was a, a self-contained short story. Bill was the person who told you this doesn't feel like a short story. This feels like a novel. I'm wondering what that process was to grow a short story into this novel. It's a, it obviously took a great many years to do so. Um, was it a stilted process? Was it an easy flowing process in which there was a lot of revisions? I'm curious about uh, the timeline that Lookout took from short story to published novel. Yeah, it was a, a combination of both of those. It was um, intense periods of flow and really the harmonic, beautiful novel writing thing that you hear people talk about, like, oh, it was almost as if it wasn't me. I, the characters like flowed through me, like periods like that, for sure, where I just felt utterly captivated by the story and almost like like I was meeting these people the way you would meet someone in the real world where you, oh, you met them at a potluck and then later you ran into them at the gas station and you really like something about them and you find out something different each time you meet. It felt almost like that um, at times. And then there were long periods of, um, I don't know if I'd even call it stuck, but more just moving away from it for a while. And I've realized that that's a big part of my process. In part, it's formed by my seasonal work. You know, I've worked on the trail crews and in the trails world for 27 years, you know, by far the better part of my writing adult life. I have these built-in rhythms of intense writing time and then many months of 
not writing at all as far as pen to paper, although there's a lot of ruminative, a lot of um, just the unquantifiable stuff you have to do in order to write later. Um, and so that is part of what took a really long time. But um, yeah, it was funny when I, I've returned to the first chapter, which wasn't the first paragraph that I wrote is very different than how it originally started. But the core of this girl and her father and her family is very much present from the original story. And the thing that was great about um, about Bill is um, he had such an incredible combination of accessible warmth and like no bones, like <laughs> what bossy seems the wrong word, but like gruffness where he'd be like, you know, I remember talking to him about the story and, and he was like, well, you know that, you know why the ending doesn't work, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, well, well, no, but I know you do. So tell me. And he's like, cause it's not the ending. This is a novel. This isn't a short story. And he kind of pushed it away from him. And then of course I was like 23 or four. I'd never taken a creative writing class, let alone with somebody of his stature. I really admired him. And I just felt like shut down, like, oh no, I had, I turned this in as a story. It's not even a story. How did I not know? And then of course, I don't know how to write a novel. But then he followed that with so much warmth of, there's so much here. You've got, you've got uh, a story to find, like, get the hell out of here and go do it. So that's, a, I think, what a great teacher offers is they show you the limits of what you've done or, and also the possibilities at the same time. And so he's a definite um, hovering presence over the novel. And, and uh, so I, I, of course, had to cite him in its origins. You're listening to A Conversation with Christine Bile. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is sponsored by Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana, a literary community resource for the Bitterroot Valley, providing space to explore, discover, and share passions since 1974. More information can be found at chapteronebookstore.com. I want to focus on this idea of being among authors like Bill and these other writers of the West, because I'm curious how you consider Lookout in relationship to other books written about the West, whether that is Bill's Hole in the Sky or anything that's written with this place in mind. Maybe the better question is about what type of Western this book is, because it is set in Montana. It is a Western novel, but there, there are so many stereotypes about Westerns. There are so many uh, different ways that Westerns are now being written. I'm curious how you think of Lookout in, in amidst them all, perhaps. I think about that a lot. I'm glad you asked it, because um, I, I think it's an important question to, to consider anybody doing anything, really, but in writing for me right now specifically is the lineage that you come out of. What do you owe it? What do you want to depart from? What do you feel like you inherited that you maybe don't want? What were the missteps or the burdens of the lineage? And so I definitely consider myself within the lineage of the the contemporary Western. I mean, as a child, I read, you know, everything Western was what I wanted. I grew up in a in the in uh, Western Michigan and kind of urban Rust Belt. <clears throat> and if I could have spirited myself away to Cody's childhood, that would have been my first choice. You know, a horse and a, being outside all day and going to find, you know, treasures in the hills. So I read for that my whole life, whether it was, um, you know, the biographies of great Americans about 
Sitting Bull and Sacagawea and um, the young American heroes who were from the West, or whether it was um, a Little House on the Prairie books, then moving on to A.B. Guthrie and Willa Cather and so many of the prominent um, kind of earlier, late 18, early 1900s Westerns, and then into the contemporary Westerns that I really fell into deeply in Missoula. And I do see myself strongly in the lineage of that. Um, also, I feel like there's a new Western canon developing. People who are writing about the edges of the West where they meet um, uh, the urban interface in L.A., for example, meets the foothills and what happens there. Or the edge of a reservation abutting uh, a town that's on colonized land. Or There's so much good writing now. The Western has expanded far beyond the old tropes, although I do think they're still really persistent. And we don't often realize, I didn't, in writing this book, I had to look at things that I would say and then be like, is that really what I think? Is that really the only people who would be here? Like trying to invite openings into the received notion of the Western. And so my publisher, Will Evans at Deep Vellum, referred to it in a different interview as, I think of it as a queer Western which I think in part he meant because there are a couple of queer characters, but also the sense of queer as just like tell it slant a little bit, like the M Emily Dickinson notion of just there's something that I wanted. Uh, I wouldn't say I wanted it intentionally to write it, but I was open to having a larger cast of characters, having um, not all the white people always be talking only to white people, but not having other people be tokens, having them be their own selves as far as I could see them. Um, as well as resisting the notion that aloneness and forging and, you know, conflict were the primary um, movers, uh, the engines, uh, thinking more about um, co community and families. Like, I was always really hungry for the larger pageants of interactions and communities, because I think that's one thing about the West is so much of the so many of the tropes are about aloneness and solitude, but so many of the experiences of lived Western lives are about connection for good or ill, <laughs> deep connections and trust and distrust and and uh, modulating all of those. So um, that's, I think, kind of what I'm hoping that my book participates in. You're right. I think there is a, there's a need and a want to to know how people come together in relationship to that vastness as well. And in this book, in Lookout, the humans, which have, they're, they're such big characters, and yet they're somehow, um, they, they don't seem to me or they didn't seem to me like huge personalities, and yet they were fully formed humans. Like I knew these characters, um, but they, they exist alongside the non-human world in this book in equal measure. And in, in trying to figure out exactly how you've managed this, because you're technically writing about a human family, I kind of came to the conclusion that the natural spaces that your characters move through, right, they're filters then for the human emotions and events that take place. And I'm wondering if that idea, that idea of a filter resonates with you. Are you able to talk about the way that you understand humans and our emotions, our very human emotions, because they're filtered through the natural world, um, the non-human world. The best way for me to describe how I think about that relationship is to go back to, I don't remember if it was high school, early high school, junior high, where I was taught about the pieces of a story, the characters, the 
setting. And I remember having a, this epiphany that was like, why is the setting not a character? Like, I didn't totally understand. I mean, I did technically, but I had a niggle that was like the setting, a really involved setting to me seems like a character, partly based on my experience in childhood. I grew up visiting the shores of Lake Michigan, where both of my parents are lived and spent a lot of their lives. And I experienced the lake like a, like a persona. It wasn't a human, but it was a its own big set of everything that humans have, <laughs> feelings and moods and personalities and things to worry about. And so I, I think a part of me has always been tuned toward the natural spaces that we think we move up against like a backdrop. I think of them more as that they're moving and we're moving through each other. And so um, I, I feel as if this book, the setting is a character. Um, and that more, so even more than a filter, it's almost like a, mm, I wouldn't even say mirror, but like, it's just like a participant, like a shoulder to shoulder participant. And I remember one, one reader said, to me that the workshop, a space that is returned to again and again, that they experienced it as, as a character. And that to me helped me put together all of that I'm saying now of like, oh yeah, I think that that deep belief that I had as a kid and that has re I've retained, I think that's what's going on in the book is that the Western Montana, Northwestern Montana, um, I wrote that as a character and, and it has equal footing as the members of the family. Um, I'm curious if we're going to stick with this idea of place, which I feel like it's inevitable in in a novel like Lookout. I'm curious how place facilitates or jumpstarts, I guess is an okay phrase to use, your writing process as well. Because you live in Alaska, but both Dirt Work and Lookout take place in Montana, or that Montana is the the main setting there. Is there is there something about allowing yourself time away from a place that allows you to write more generously and, uh, I don't know, the bigness of it, like a place like Montana? I think for me, it has a lot to do with time and the fact that I've moved. I lived in Montana for about eight years in my the better part of my 20s, and then I moved to Alaska where I've lived for 20. And I think to really write deeply about a place, I need time. I I can't so the story that I referred to that I wrote my first year or two in Missoula was a, a story about the characters, but it was a very immature rendering of the place. I didn't yet know instinctively what things would smell like, what birds would be where, what birds wouldn't, what plants would grow there or not, what temperature would be normal, all that stuff. I feel like that accumulates over time invested and lived in a place. And so I think to some degree, I've always felt best writing at remove of years from a place after I've grown to know it well. And it just happened that for me, that time elapsed, uh, occurred when I moved away from Missoula to Alaska or Montana to Alaska. And it took me a good long while in Alaska to write about it as well. I wrote little bits first, but I wasn't ready to complete dirt work, which ends a couple chapters at the end in Alaska. I wasn't ready to write the whole thing until I had lived in Alaska for, I think it came out after I had lived here for you know almost 12 years. I want to talk about the title because the title to me was sort of a red herring or a misnomer because the the book itself and the the ways in which these characters come to know themselves and the people around them their family their friends these people that are passing through their lives i felt like the impulse was um as a reader to look within you right like these these people are are growing 
together, they're growing apart, they're they're trying to figure out who they are in relationship to everyone else around them. And that is a looking within. And and yes, there is a lookout in in the text. Um, but I, I want to know what where that title came from, apart from that maybe singular place in the text, or how you feel like the title is representative of these stories within this book, this one book, and these these many, many very full, full-hearted people within the book. To me, it, there is a lookout, a fire lookout in the book that is a kind of a marker on a ridge that's referred to just a couple times. And then at one point, a character is a, um, on a fire crew for a little while. Certainly not, as you say, the anchoring arc of the whole book. But um, I think the word lookout to me, for one thing, I really like like a kind of um, saxonic words like that, like dirt work, lookout. They have somebody who's like, oh, you're book titles sound sort of similar. I love those words that feel very grounded. And um, so when I heard that, my husband actually is my titler. Any good title I've ever had comes from him. He's like down to like a little essay for some one-off on a website or something. Um, and we went through tons like brainstorming. And and when he said that one, I was like, that's interesting. And so for me, the real metaphoric work that it does, which I, it feels a little awkward to talk about after the fact, because I didn't write it toward this but uh, to me the a lookout the notion of a posted lookout has both a sense of protective perimeter um kind of enclosing and then also a scanning of the horizon for potential threat or possibility and i i, I think the main characters in this book are doing that they're they're huddling within a perimeter where they feel safe and they're also looking beyond that to see whether they could go further and whether it's safe and um, to do so. And so I really like words that have tensions like that in them, that you could hear the word lookout said on the playground to kids who are trying to get each other and they're like, look out, look out, he's coming. And it has a sense of fun and joy. And then you could hear somebody be like, look out, like you're about to get hit by a car or you're bugging me or whatever, to have those two um, tonalities present in it to me makes it a very rich um counter kind of the same kind of countering that the characters are doing on a more practical level i think yeah that that makes sense to me that makes sense to me um I told you a while ago um, when we were emailing back and forth that at one point I was rereading parts of the book and that I was enjoying a good cry um, while reading. And you said that I was not the only reader to have expressed this idea that they were crying while reading your book, but you expressed a bit of surprise um, that this book kind of elicited that reaction in your readers. And I'm wondering if you could tell me what that reaction makes you feel. Well, it's it's funny because I initially was surprised, I think, um, just in the way you would be surprised by anything, the, the dynamic I was talking about earlier where these are my people and now I'm other people are meeting them. It Maybe I would be surprised if somebody said I laughed a lot or I loved them or whatever. It was just the newness of having other people experience them as people. Um, I cried, to be honest, when I wrote the book a bunch of different times. And even as editing, I would have certain chapters or pieces that I can point to now that I get a kind of full feeling in my throat. And it's not at all like, oh, you really nailed this. It's so sad. It's more about the external experience of what that would have been like for that person, a crux, a feeling unseen, a fear, whatever. Um, and so a part of me, I think, just thought, well, I just have that because 
I made them up and I feel a certain way about them. So of course I'd be more inclined to have that emotional response. But I since have realized that because so many people have told me they're having these unexpected moments in a chapter where they'll just be like, holy cow. That was Christine Bile, author of Lookout, her debut novel, out now from Deep Vellum. Look for more information about Christine at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris Moyles engineered this episode, and Aidan McMahon helped with initial edits for this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided in part by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.